0: Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by Tops, introducing the most high-end Tops Star Wars trading card product ever. Tops, Star Wars Stellar Signatures! And The Last Jedi series out now. They're available now at all great hobby stores. Also take a journey across the Star Wars saga with that sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi by visiting tops.com to pick up your trading cards today. And if you're into the digital side of collecting, be sure to download Tops Card Trader app. In fact, Star Wars Card Trader app is offering a 20% increase in crystal bundle sales. Offers available through December 21st if you sign in now.
1: A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films. The official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force.
0: That's right, Whistler, welcome to episode 228 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of podcast at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here, let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of our multiverse, the Bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Hurlman, and with me like a force bond I just can't shake, not that I'd really want to, the EU guru himself, our count of our two continuities,
1: Mr. Nathan P. Butler! I don't really want to do this right now. Isn't that what she said? I just don't want to do this right now or something. At least it never happened when one of them was going to the bathroom. (laughs) Oh! Could you stop looking? Could you? No, I'm not going to (laughs) stop. Well, as much as she, you know, she made the comment about him, you know, being shirtless, which apparently was something that my wife and her friends noticed very quickly, um, at least Kylo wasn't sitting back going, shower time, shower time, shower time, crap, she's clothed. So, at least we didn't have that quite going on as much as it could have been. He didn't quite go that direction. Uh, Kept it family friendly. But yes, hello! Um... It's been an interesting uh, few days seeing The Last Jedi, and in my case I've had a chance to talk about a little spoiler-free on the vlog, a little spoiler-filled on the vlog, and to discuss it in spoiler-ish ways on a couple of live streams for Battlefront 2. But I've said in each one it'll be interesting uh, for us to talk about it, um, and for me and Michael to talk about on Cloud City Casino, because we tend to have... Uh, divergent views but in ways that are interesting to talk about and i'm kind of tired of hearing myself talk so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure the audience is like yep we know that feeling nate we really know that oh. feeling ouch <laughs> yeah, but, but yes yeah, so uh what's
0: up mark how you doing doing good man doing good my my daughter's dating now i've i've done with my fundraiser i'm i'm about to start recording again on Star Wars report because i've been so afraid of spoilers i have been trying to stay spoiler free for this movie for a good while um you know you know how it is Nate you know i'm i'm a huge legends fan so my bread and butter era was always the current luke story you know it didn't matter didn't matter what I was reading at that moment. If there was a new book where it put Luke out at like age 45 or 46 or whatever the next point was, that was where I, I could read those books like within two weeks. Like I remember when uh Shadows of Mindor came out and I did not like that. Like that was a good Stover book, but I didn't like it. It wasn't a current Luke story. You know, for me, it was like going back and rehashing something I really didn't care for. I wanted that new stuff. So for me going into this era – in canon now, where everything is significantly different, you know uh, the best reference I have is is going Marvel main six one six universe to the Ultimate Universe Spider Man. Uh, you know that's about the only difference I can come up with. And whereas I like both the Spider Man, I'm still kind of processing how I'm enjoying canon. I know I love the Legends universe; that one that one rocked. But this is a new. A new picture you know it's a new portrait for me to look at i'm I'm trying to take in all the details try to really appreciate it for what it is you know i'm not trying to make it a comparison to the old yet you can't help it you know there's a lot of things as we'll get into the spoiler part that that there are a lot of comparisons here to a lot of things that we did know and love from legends some that were good some that were bad uh and i think that that for me overall that's probably one of the biggest takeaways for me was that there was there was good and there was bad um I didn't feel like there was much in the way of bad. I felt like there was a lot more good, but there was a lot to process. Um, Nate, you want to, you want to toss something real quick before we jump into our, our spoiler free real rundown? I mean, I've given a tactile feel for stuff before we get into it, but did you have anything before we get into our spoiler free bit?
1: No, no. I think that I'm still in the processing process as well. Um, I'm going to hopefully go see it again sometime this week, uh, which would be the week after release. And maybe that'll take some of the things I've already been thinking about and give it more context. This is definitely a movie that you need to see more than once, because the first time it's all about what on earth is going to happen, whoa, that was interesting twist, you know, what a twist, and all that. And then once you know what's going to happen, the next time you watch, you can look for the nuances, because it's probably the least predictable Star Wars film that we've gotten so far, which means that the difference between that first viewing and a second viewing feels like it's going to be a much wider gap. Uh, than it was for any of the previous ones so looking forward to seeing it again and more processing but at least I've got I've had a chance to process enough that I think we can talk intelligently about it um, or at least you can talk intelligently about it and I can kind of stumble along behind you and we'll be good
0: for me it's it's just been a solo watch so let's let's just
1: jump right in there no it's not going to be a solo watch until May Ooh, oh oh I walked right into that one uh, well played well played
0: Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions, questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Ryan Johnson's Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. So, Nate, the first thing I wanted to ask you was the how, where, and with who did we watch it?
1: Well, in my case, uh, it was me and my wife. Um, our local theater had, of course, a, I guess they called it a preview night now. They don't really call it a midnight showing anymore because it's gotten earlier and earlier on the night before the official release. Uh, the first showing available was around 7 or so. Uh, she worked until 7.30 that night, so our plan basically was is when we bought the tickets ages ago, uh, as soon as she got home from work, she eats something real quick, and we head straight out. It's about a half-hour drive, give or take, to the theater over here, and we went to see it at 9.40 in 3D, and real 3D for those who care. And we watched it in XD, which I've said before when we talked about the other films, that XD is what Cinemark has as their franchise that's sort of a step between a regular screen and an IMAX screen. Not nearly as big as IMAX, but bigger than a traditional screen. So uh, it was just she and I. uh, We went, but it was kind of cool because we sort of – like we don't get costumed up for it. We don't do the cosplay stuff. But we got dressed for the occasion, right? So I had my Star Wars Report shirt on, my Darth Maul jacket from Celebration 1 that's usually sitting in my closet, my Rogue One hat from Disney Movie Rewards and all that. Um, She had a Kylo Ren shirt that she got from uh, Celebration and then had her her Universe Darth Vader jacket on. And, of course, um, now that we've taken care of all the car stuff, we've replaced my totaled Kia Rio 5 long may she rest, Uh, (laughs) with a a, a 2018 Kia Soul. And, of course, if you look from behind, a Kia Soul looks like a First Order helmet. And we bought a silver one. So we call it Phasma. So we drove Phasma to go see Phasma and the others, basically. But no, it's good. We just, I mean, we went in, we, you know, I, I, I think for me, the experience of it, was interesting because again it was mostly fans in there although there was a guy standing outside debating with the uh ticket counter person uh about or trying to discuss how he couldn't understand how Luke and Vader turned out to be the same person. Um I think he needs to go back and watch the original movies again. I I was I was trying very hard not to mock him. My wife was trying less hard not to mock him, but thankfully <laughs> wasn't heard. Um <laughs> but yeah. then uh Like For us, like my thing when going to see a movie, one of the issues that I run into is with my IBS and the medicines that I have to take, it's difficult for me to stay sitting still during a film for the entire length of it, especially a longer film. So we planned ahead this time, and we got set up so that we were on the edges of the middle section. So if I had to get up, it wouldn't disturb other people or anything. And I was amazed that it sort of felt like the movie flew by in that – For the first time in ages, I only had to get up once during the entire film, and for me, that is a miracle. So it was kind of an interesting thing in that sense, and um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of neat just seeing the other fans around us. It wasn't like there was a lot of, you know, hoopla and people, you know, yelling at the screen or clapping or anything like that, but there were a few, and it was just a good atmosphere in which to see it, and I think that that was – to a large degree, thank because of you know just the the stadium seating or not the stadium seating the uh, reclining seating that they do and things like that and they really made sure to have the people, uh, the ushers and whatnot I guess you call them they had people there to help people to their seats to make sure that if you did uh, leave to go grab something to eat or something like that that they were there to kind of make sure you were guided back to where you needed to get back to what was the easiest way to get back it just they gave it a nice atmosphere in which to see the film. And then the film itself just kind of carried you on through, so it was, a, it was fun. And then I wound up you know, going home and having about two hours sleep before work the next morning where I'm, I had to drive the car for the first time on my massive morning commute uh, about 40 miles through Atlanta traffic to go to work. Um, but thankfully I got there safely, didn't fall asleep, and uh, didn't spoil the film for anybody who immediately asked me, So, how was it? Yeah, right? Yeah, we can't get away from that. At least it was, so how was it not, so are you going to go see it? Someone asks you, are you going to go see it? You want to, like, laugh at them. Like, do you know me? (laughs) Have we met? (laughs) See, one of those
0: do you know me things is is how I was able to watch it. So, for me... This weekend was super busy. This was one of the biggest fundraisers that my scout troop does. We uh, do a concession stand at the local high school while they're doing a wrestling tournament. So I have been ulcer ridden with this problem thrown in my lap since last December. Uh, and as it's gotten closer, I've been stressing that. And then, of course, you know, when, knowing what day the film was coming out, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to watch it because I'm committed to this thing from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. So I was like, man, I'm not going to get to watch it then. And then you know I was like well hopefully I'll be able to watch the preview. Well my local theater chain the word from Disney has always been with the these films the Star Wars films only well and sometimes the Thor ones only the managers get to watch them. They're not letting the staff watch it. So you have one manager watching it in 2D, one manager watching it in 3D and they're basically just watching it to make sure there's no problems with the film as it plays. <laughs> yeah yeah
1: yeah that's that's what they're watching it for. They're not wanting to see it at all.
0: R- right? Yeah. So, so that's what they did last year and the year before that. So I was kind of like, you know, that's probably coming down the pike. Well, I come in on the 12th, which is the normal night that we would preview a movie before everyone else gets to preview it the day early. And one of the other guys is like, did you hear? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm thinking like, oh, we're going to get to watch it. And he's like, they suspended all of our movie privileges for The Last Jedi for two weeks. I'm like, what? Like sure enough. Yep. Word from on high, we can't watch that movie with our free pass to take our family and stuff for two whole weeks. We have to pay money like everyone else. Oh, awesome. Way to go, money. The almighty dollar. So I'm like, great. I'm gonna not get to watch this for two more damn weeks. Like, and I know I'm, 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 you know, I, I put off recording with Riley to stay spoiler free. We were going to try to record right away. I'm like, Oh my God, this is, could this be any worse? Like, here I am, one of these pentulant ultimate Star Wars fans, like in my community, and I'm not going to get to watch it unless I'm shelling out the money and I can't be there on the day it opens. So I'm like, Oh my God. So I'm trying not to panic about this. Like, I'm, I know I'm going to watch it. It's just a matter of when will we be able to do our content? Right. So I'm in the back. I'm doing the vacuuming stuff. And then, uh, one of the managers, Dylan, he was—he was pretty like, man, this is messed up what they're doing. Like, <laughs> if you guys come in and, and there's nobody here, I might let you walk in. You know, like he's like really getting all up in arms about it. You know, so they come back later. on. I'm almost done with the vacuuming stuff, and they're like, well, here's the thing—we got to do the preview. You know, we got to do one in 2D and we got to do one in the 3D. And he's like, I've got to—I got to watch the Ferdinand with everyone else. He's like, so I, I've got to be in that one. So, and Sam's the only other manager and Sam's been here since 10 this morning. And this is, you know, almost midnight at this point. So he's like, Sam has no interest in watching it at this moment. He wants to go home and go to sleep. He's also, Andrew's going to watch it in one. And and if you want, you can watch it in the other one. I was like, nice. And Andrew's like, you can have your pick 2D or 3D. So I went 3D. So I got to actually watch this in a theater completely by myself. So yes, I did take some pictures, but no, they have not been shared on the internet. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. But that, I think for me, I haven't seen it a second time. So I have no experience what this is like for other fans. You know, I was just, I yelled out at certain parts and stuff and I, I I had my own personal solo adventure there. Um, but I, I didn't have that, fellowship, that community aspect of like you're talking about with the other fellow fans. So I'm looking forward to taking my, my family to it. Um, as we probably, I'll probably take my wife to go see it and we'll pay for it and then make my kids wait the other two weeks to take them. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't figured that plan out yet, but movies are expensive. So that's part of why I started working at the theater. So for me, I, that was, that was a big win i guess because i wasn't really expecting to get to watch it so being able to pull out my phone and take a couple you know the a picture of it saying the last jedi picture certain scenes and stuff i was like this is so awesome because usually i try to do that at the end of the movie and usually i show up and there's like two other people in there and i'm like damn it i can't do it i i constantly want to take my digital recorder and just sit down and do a commentary track live as i'm doing it but i don't want to be rude to the other people so so yeah i haven't got to do that yet i'm actually looking forward to that i think that'd be a really fun aspect um what were your overall thoughts,
1: as uh, spoiler free as we can get it here, uh, on this film, man? Let's let's do this. <laughs> I thought it was really good. I'm not sure where it falls on my sort of hierarchy of the films. Mainly because I need to process and I need to see it again to really sort of uh, fit all the pieces together in my head. But uh, very different. Very different. And different in a good way. You know, this is the first Star Wars film that really had surprises for me. Um, and that's, of course... Barring the whole issue of, you know, no, I am your father, because by the time I saw that uh, later, that was one of those things where I saw it, you know, when I was a baby, apparently my mom took me to see it, which is, you know, bad. Don't take a baby to a movie theater. But, you know, then my biggest experience was getting back into it heavily with uh, Return of the Jedi in 1983, and you couldn't watch The Empire Strikes Back at home yet. It wasn't on home video for another year. So... By the time I wound up seeing The Empire Strikes Back and really getting to watch it multiple times, I already knew the big spoiler because, of course, that plays such a huge role in Return of the Jedi. So not having had that kind of surprise experience for most of the films, it has been you kind of know where it's going or you can predict where it's going. It's just a question of how it gets there in many respects. And that's not helped by the fact that trailers do a good job of spoiling certain things or at least making you think they're spoiling certain things. So in this case, it was interesting that this was the time where I really kind of felt like there were some surprises. And I think from the moment Luke does the first thing he does, you're like, oh, this is going to be different. I watched it in 3D, as did you. And I'm kind of a big 3D aficionado. I love watching 3D Blu-rays at home. That's kind of one of my things. And one of the things that stood out to me with this was that the 3D in particular was pretty well done. Like with Rogue One, it was fairly well done. And there were moments where it was noticeable, but it wasn't something that really added to the atmosphere a ton. This time it really did feel like it added to the atmosphere. And then when I look back and compare it to The Force Awakens, The Force Awakens 3D, except for really one or two shots, like the finalizer uh, as as an establishing shot, most of the time you would watch stuff in 3D in The Force Awakens, it was all sort of going away from the screen. It was almost like looking into a diorama uh, through a window. Whereas in this case... It really felt like it was kind of around – not really around you per se, but it's sort of coming out, and I don't know if that's that I've grown more appreciative of it having played VR so much because PlayStation VR is all about the stereoscopic 3D while you're in the environment, or if I've just started to take more notice of it now that I've seen three Star Wars films in 3D and can actually make a comparison, but I thought that was pretty well done. The performances were fantastic. Uh, This definitely solidified Kylo Ren as my favorite film character of the new canon. I think he actually now has surpassed Dr. Aphra as my favorite character of the new canon, but that's a very close shave there, um, because Aphra's nuts. And yeah, it's one of those that I'll be interested to see where it goes from here. It... I think that, there, that there are, the critics are right, or the, the people who are sort of decrying it are right, in that it seems as though in some cases Ryan Johnson just wanted to kind of do his own thing, and some of the things set up by J.J. Abrams, it's kind of like he was like, no, I don't want to use that, I'm just going to take care of this in some other way and focus on what I want to focus on, which sort of begs the question of where it goes now that J.J. Abrams is going to be back for episode 9, where does it pick up from here, because uh, you don't necessarily want the entire trilogy to feel weird So that middle installment is uh, disjointed and feels disconnected from the two on either end.
0: You're like, why can't Karen Travis
1: and Denning just get along, man? Why can't we have a a
0: thorough (laughs) Mandalorian plot?
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, I don't know. It's one of those that I'm going to have to process, as I've said. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I think it is one of the stronger outings that we've had for a Star Wars film. And I think that... The more we look at it, the more we're going to see nuances to it that we didn't necessarily see before. Um, like, for instance, I didn't realize that, you know, it really does have quite a few parallels to The Empire Strikes Back to an almost remake level without, you know, I didn't think about that before. I was like, wait, what the heck are you talking about? But there are those parallels again. It's just more divergent from that formula uh, than The Force Awakens was divergent from A New Hope. I am actually also looking forward to, once we get episode 9, to being able to watch in an order that is suggested, jokingly, that is, by uh, John Jackson Miller. I don't know if you saw this online, but uh, his suggestion is that what you do is you watch The Last Jedi, then Return of the Jedi, then The Force Awakens, then uh, The Empire Strikes Back, then Revenge of the Sith, then Rogue One, then episode 9 when it comes out, and you leave out the other films, it's called the Jenny viewing order because it's eight six seven five three row nine, nine with the row being Rogue One. <laughs> oh my god! That, I did see that, but I didn't get it. Oh, oh my god, so that, that was brilliant! That was brilliant! That was probably the most brilliant Star Wars viewing order joke I have ever heard, and all credit oh to John Jackson god. Miller because he just—I was like, uh, what is it? Oh my god! And I'm like, I must oh, share so this. Over my head. I must share that this. Is awesome. Um, so yeah, great experience. I don't actually think I'll use the Jenny viewing order at some point, but knowing me, I might actually try it to see if it works.
0: Well, I, I did want to make that comparison with The Empire Strikes Back, uh, but we're going to have to save that for the spoiler part, right? But there is something that we will do after I, I get done with my points here. Uh, I wanted to do an immediate initial reaction. Order And you weren't prepared. I'm still not prepared. So I think in the spoiler free part would be a great time to say which order will we do it just immediately. You know, no, 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 even holding our feet to the fire on this. This is literally just a in the moment. So and I like I said, I watched it in 3D. So for me with the 3D. I, I didn't really feel like the three D did much to enhance it. Like it didn't distract, which was a great thing because usually I like to go and watch the three D first so I can get that feel for what it was because for the most part like I'm more worried about am I seeing it right? Are my eyes catching it right? Is the you know, is everything lined up or is the projector focused? Uh but I don't know. Like I, I, for me, I felt like I could have been watching it in 2D really. Like it, there didn't seem to be that much in the way of the 3D effect. And I did. I we had Dolby Real D, so
1: I, I don't know if there was much of a difference there in how I watched it versus how you watched it. One thing I did notice, you said, get you know, the angle might make a difference and stuff like that. I did notice that. That is one thing that we did because because we were sitting on the edge. So if I had to go up and use the restroom, I could. It didn't really affect the way the 3D worked for most of the film, but the way that they do the opening crawl. Basically, the space starfield background still looked like it was lined up with the screen itself. Uh, it had some depth but looked like it was lined up with the screen itself. But I guess the way they set up the crawl so that everybody can read it is that it looks like it's lined up with the angle you're looking from regardless of what angle you're looking from. So for me, it looked like the crawl was like going kind of crooked. Because it was lined up to my eyes, but the screen wasn't exactly lined up as if I was dead center. And yet the crawl was going as if it was dead center, which was weird. I'd never seen that. I kind of want to try that on the the home video 3D versions in the other room just to see if it does that same thing. Because I've never seen that happen with a 3D Star Wars crawl before.
0: No doubt. Well, and speaking of angles, I think that was one of the things I really enjoyed about Ryan Johnson's directing. You know, he would do space battles where you would be from a point of view up above, like, a single destroyer or a dreadnought or something, and then he would kind of, like, drop towards it. And as you got closer, the camera would, like, drop, and so the, the destroyer would start to lift up a little bit, and then it would be a bigger space battle going on down below it and stuff like that. Like, he really used the angles in the space battles to a degree that I fell in love with the way he was doing his style. Um, I, You know, Gareth Edwards, he was really good with angles and stuff with the scenery and things like that. I'm actually really excited for the fact that we got these new directors coming in and to bring in their own spin on things. Like that was probably one of the coolest aspects of this film was the choices of how he chose to film the angles. I really got a kick out of that. The space battles were on point. Uh I have no complaints on the space battles. Uh with you, I'm I'm also in Kylo's camp. I think Kylo was better developed. I really liked the character, whereas in the first movie I felt like he was a whiny penchant brat. This one I'm feeling the conflict. Uh and, and same with Poe. Poe was a, a much better developed character as well. I really enjoyed the conflict of his character, uh how they used Laura Dern and her uh vice admiral position as a foil for him. I thought that was great. Uh and the fact that Ryan Johnson pulled something that legends wouldn't, and there will be more details in the spoiler part on that, because there was something I have been begging for legends to do for decades. And they never, ever went there, and Johnson did. Uh so for me that was that was probably a big highlight. Uh, and then all the way around, I felt like this episode, this episode had the intensity. The intensity was top notch. They took it to a whole new level. And I'm, I'm definitely glad I stayed spoiler free going in. So I think when it came to discussing this, as Nate said at the beginning, that was probably one of the more difficult things. It's like, my wife was like, so? And I'm like, I, I would love to tell you so many things right now. And I would love to, to put them in ways where you couldn't guess but i know you know me well enough that i would put something out there and you would get it so i i've been i've been so tight-lipped on it that this is literally the first time i'm getting to talk about so many of these things i'm sure a lot of them are going to be slipped right by because like nate said there's so much more you're going to pick up on the second viewing i'm seeing that from all my friends online in the fandom and outside the fandom everybody's picking up more on the second viewing so i'm i'm really looking forward to that can't wait to get back in there for that but that said though i did feel like even though this movie was a great one I don't think I would put it as my top movie. There were some things about this that didn't quite all sit right with me. I'm still digesting that. Like, there's no hate here. But there's definitely some things that I I might call plot holes, maybe.
1: But then we shall see. I only have really one main what-the-heck type thing for that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, so let's dive into spoiler territory then. And we should note. For those who are like, well, these are your first impressions. When are we going to hear any refined impressions? Remember, we're going to be recording our year in review after this. And the year in review always ends with one that's based on like film and TV and stuff, right? So that'll give us an opportunity to revisit this about, what, four episodes or whatever it is from now as well. So, you know, if you're worried about, wait a second, they haven't seen it a second time. What must they think after the second? You'll be able to get sort of an abridged impressions when we get to that point, too.
0: Mm-hmm. So before we do that, our real quick initial—what will we call them? So for me right now, I am saying that I'm actually—man, oh it's weird to say it too—but at this moment, Rogue One has shifted. Rogue One is now probably my top spot. I am going to say Empire Strikes Back is next. Then I'm going to go with The Force Awakens. Then I'm going to go with Revenge of the Sith. I'd put this one after Revenge of the Sith. From there, I would go Episodes Six, Four, One, and Two. That's my story. I'm sticking to it (laughs) for now.
1: And me, um, well, I mean, I think of it as as tiers. I have a hard time, for instance, determining what's my top and second choices from the films that were already out, but it's always the same two jockeying for the top two slots. And then third and fourth go back and forth, but it's always those same two for third and fourth right now. Uh, So my top tier right now is The Force Awakens and. Rogue One, jockeying back and forth. Then the next tier would be basically uh, Revenge of the Sith and Return of the Jedi. Next tier, A New Hope and the Empire Strikes Back. Then bottom tier would be Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace. For me, pacing does a lot for it. This film was really good as far as pacing goes, and so were some of the other more recent films, so that tends to color my view. But I also remember, and I think back, that now I've established kind of a pattern in essence, because my very first podcast ever was Chrono Radio. And the very first episode was recorded on the day that Attack of the Clones was released. So I went to see a midnight showing, and then the first episode of Chrono Radio was a reaction to Attack of the Clones. And, of course, what did I say? This might be the best Star Wars ever! Right? I was stoked for it, thought it might be the best ever. And then, uh, now that is... Lower on the totem pole for me. It's one of the bottom two. Then I saw Revenge of the Sith after uh, listening to Matthew Stover's novelization, which gave me that Stover effect, which made me really, really love the film, even though there was stuff that I was reading into it that wasn't actually on screen. And that became my favorite for quite a while. That slowly changed, and Return of the Jedi took the top slot kind of edging it out, but then The Force Awakens came, that's the top one. Rogue One came, that's the top one, or at least jockeying with The Force Awakens for top slot. So I know that while trying to be intellectually honest in my appraisal of the films and comparison of the films, I also seem to be either coincidentally liking the new ones quite a bit each time they come out, or I am distracted by the newest, shiniest Star Wars movie every time. (laughs) So that said, it's hard for me to tell where I would place this. I think it's going to wind up jockeying with Rogue One and The Force Awakens for that top slot. Probably jockeying with Rogue One for the top spot is probably what's going to wind up happening once I see it again. But it could also wind up falling into the middle of the pack. It's really going to depend on the way that I'm able to analyze it without needing to look for surprises when I watch it that second time. Um, But certainly it is one of the ones that I think is going to be fairly high on the list, more than likely. Uh, Middle, I would say middle is about the worst it could fall. But yeah, we'll just have to see whenever I see it again. Indeed. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by?
0: Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films.
1: Let me make a quick comparison here. Uh, We're going to compare it to uh, The Empire Strikes Back, but also I think that one of the things about this film that is kind of rubbing some people the wrong way is that, and it's a a valid complaint, I guess, uh, if it's not the type of story you go for, is that it's sort of like what we've got here is two different Star Wars stories happening at the same time. Because I look at this kind of like the novel, you know, beyond the films and all, Black Fleet Crisis, Shield of Lies. If you remember that book, it gets to a point where it's basically parallel stories that are happening at the same time that don't really connect much, if at all, with each other throughout the course of that book. We're used to Star Wars stories where the heroes are together, something happens that sends them off in different directions, and eventually they come back together again. That's the way Star Wars films had been structured. That's, in many cases, that's the way that Star Wars novels had often been structured, especially the ones that were really praised for mirroring the films, like the Thrawn trilogy. And in this case, we got kind of the same thing, except the split and coming back together, it's not done in one film. It's like this entire trilogy is done in the coming together, moving apart, coming together again type of feel that we usually got with just a single Star Wars film, Um, that the pattern is spread out, you might call it. So I think there is some reason to say that, yeah, this is basically sort of Ray and Luke's story over here, and to some degree Ray and Luke and Kylo's story and Snoke's story over here, and then off on this other side, it's Poe and Leia, and uh, uh, it's everything that's happening with Finn and Rose and their kind of side mission, because it's more tied into that side of the story, and really never the twain shall meet until the last five minutes or so of the story. I see that. And I agree, that's kind of a valid criticism. I'm not sure that for me it detracts from the film, though. And then you've got the parallels to The Empire Strikes Back. I'll name the ones that I've heard. You tell me if there's other ones that have jumped out at you or that you have heard. Well, see, for me, I didn't think there was much of a comparison. So I'm actually really interested. I mean, I I didn't either at first. Uh, I didn't really see the parallel. But then somebody pointed out that, okay, so here we are. It's like The Empire Strikes Back in that We have uh, our heroes split up in two main different groups going off in different directions. One of those directions is that one of them needs to go to an out-of-the-way planet uh, that's more natural than it is any kind of a a metropolitan type thing. Uh, They're going there to learn the Force from a Jedi Master who at least at first is reluctant to train them. Um, and have a dark vision of some kind while they're there, because the place has elements that are strong in the Force and so forth, and that eventually, uh, against the wishes of that master, the hero, the young trainee, is going to have to leave to go do something that they think is going to save the galaxy or save someone. Then on the flip side, you have the other group of heroes who are involved in basically an ongoing chase throughout most of the film um, where they're trying to get away in their smaller ships from big Star Destroyer slash Dreadnought big old ships that are trying to wipe them out. And the film itself then also winds up including uh, Force Ghost of a previous master and including a battle on a white-planed world, uh, in this case salt rather than snow, but a white-planed world uh, which involves speeders versus walkers. That is all stuff, and, and there's a parental revelation along the way. Now, because of how different it was handled in this, I didn't see those parallels at first. But those who were looking for parallels and just looking back saying, we could go after The Force Awakens because it was so much like A New Hope. You know it's just going to be a remake of The Empire Strikes Back. Let's look for the parallels. And we're kind of looking to find a way to criticize it as just a remake of The Empire Strikes Back. Found those things very quickly. And now that is kind of part of the narrative out there as we're trying to discuss... The film, um, so I didn't see those at first, but they're right. There are quite a few parallels. It's just that the parallels were done so differently. The whole rhyming uh, type thing, as as Kathleen Kennedy would put it, or the musical uh, way of that Lucas described it. That to me, those verses were different enough that I didn't feel like I was hearing the same thing again. It sounded much more like the bands that I like, and much less like much of many of the bands that just repeat the same crap over and over again uh if anything this was star wars as rather than if that makes sense (laughs) the only thing for me that
0: really leapt out was the fact that in both of them the leadership of the resistance the rebellion was scattered to the five winds um that was definitely an interesting aspect there were, there were, you know, there were little good, goods bads all the way around. I've mentioned the camera angles. I think for me, one of the biggest exciting things was the flashback. Uh, you know, take that. We've never had a post credit scene in Star Wars, people. You know, we never had a flashback till today either. Ha ha. We can do it. Uh, so I, I don't know. For me, I like, I like the fact that they're able to go out on that ledge. You mentioned the force ghost, which I think for me, that was, that's the thing. That legends never pulled. I kept waiting for a Yoda Force Ghost to show up. New Jedi Order, perfect damn time. Luke's at his wits end. Where's Where's Yoda? So. When Yoda showed up, that was my I screamed out loud moment. I was like, yes, this was like the the reverse of how I found out Ben's name in The Force Awakens. When when I heard his name, I did like a facepalm of dread. Like, oh, no, they named him Ben. You know, where in this case, I'm like, Yoda's there. Yes. Take that, Legends. There's finally something that
1: Canon did that I'm like, yeah. So <laughs> I was really excited about that one. But didn't Yoda seem like he's been eating better since he died? Because he was kind of, he looked weird to me. He looked kind of poofy-cheeked to me. Now, my wife's loving it because she's a big Yoda fan. So she's just like, oh, my God, it's Yoda. I don't care how he looks. And I'm looking at him the entire time he's talking. And I'm like, dude, are you okay? Do you have, like, the mumps or something? What's up?
0: It it was like there was a mixture of his puppet self from Return of the Jedi. And they were trying to, like... Bridge that between his young, healthy look and stuff. They're like, well, you know, look what Anakin did. Anakin could be whatever he was. So let's, let's like maybe, let's like add some weight. Yoda, Yoda's Force Ghost has been eating better than Yoda on Degabus. So he's not quite as gaunt. <laughs> but there were, there were so many goods and bads all the way around. I, I think for me, one of the, the ones that I wasn't so happy with was the Ray's parents reveal from uh, Kylo. There's one part of me that's like, he's lying. Like I I I don't buy it. Like what what better way to get us all to stop thinking about it than have a big reveal come later? Uh but the way Disney's playing things, I kind of I don't think they're going to take that. I I I I don't know. Like that that's one to me like I'm one of those I like when things are more connected. I know there are a lot of people out there that hate that everything has to be connected. I don't think everything has to be, but I do like in my saga films especially when there is some kind of a connection there, like it, it, to me, it draws the story closer together. That doesn't mean that Ray has to come from somebody like that, but I just thought it'd be right. Nice and cool. You know, to me that feels right. So that's definitely one of those that I'm like, huh? I think when we get the aspect of Luke betraying Ben, when we get that moment in the flashback itself, though, I thought that that was an interesting moment because not only is he betraying Ben, he's also betraying Han and Leah, you know, and I almost wondered was that something Snoke did? Cause like Luke had a moment where he broke down and he basically saw that Ben had darkness and, and for some reason decided he was going to snuff that darkness out. And in a moment, he ignited his lightsaber. And in that same moment, he realized the mistake he made almost felt like someone was playing temptation island with him. I don't know. Did you get that kind of a
1: vibe at all? I got the temptation vibe. I think it was, I don't think it was someone else outside manipulating him. I think it was just this idea that, you know, he's human. And here's someone who is caught up in the fear of the moment, caught up in uh, the temptation to snuff out what he fears, uh, in particular. Given the fact that you know this is the guy that sees himself, or he kind of got caught up in his own hype, right? That people were seeing him as a legend, and he w- that's what gave him the confidence to say, "Yeah, I can make a new Jedi Order." Except now he's he's worrying about the possibility of being responsible for the next Vader. What I like about it is the fact that. He has the moral strength or the ethical strength to then turn away from that once it it hits him. It's kind of like his never smack, 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 and then giving up the lightsaber moment in Return of the Jedi where he's tempted, but he's able to withstand that temptation. But what I liked about it was it was all about perception, right? Um And most of this film, there are uh, are instances all over the place of something not meeting an expectation, something being different than the outcome that was expected to happen. And in this case, it was about misperception, right? Because in Luke's case, he sees this great darkness and how powerful Ben is and is worried about it, but is able to sort of push it back. But the damage is done because he's standing there with the lit lightsaber, which allows Ben to see it, never get an explanation and basically lash out. And then the dominoes start falling and you wind up with the temple destroyed. You wind up with uh, him joining Snoke, although Snoke was already manipulating him behind the scenes apparently, um, sort of feeding doubt and such into his mind. But it all comes down to if they had only been able to have a conversation, if he had only been able to apologize and explain, so much suffering could have been saved. But instead, what we had was this, you know, both of them essentially feeling like they're in the right and in fact, to some degree, being in the right, because he really was going to strike him down, he was just starting to have second thoughts and wasn't going to actually do it by the time that Ben acted. I think that is much better of a reason than just, oh, well, he just became dark and just one night decided to kill everyone. You know, it, it's a much more personal reason. And it's one that is more tragic in the fact that it is it's, it's basically a you know, a misunderstanding. It reminds me of and in the tragic nature of it. And it's not exactly the same, but it reminds me what 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 jumps to my mind is if you look at Romeo and Juliet and this idea that, you know, Juliet is supposedly dead, Romeo, you know, spoiler alert in case you haven't read a book that's hundreds of years old. but Juliet is supposedly dead, having faked her death. Romeo goes to see her and as a result, kills himself. And then she awakens, sees him dead, and kills herself. But what a lot of people forget is that when she concocts this plan to make herself look like she's dead, she sends a writer with a message who is – or I guess Friar Lawrence does – that's supposed to bring a message to Romeo telling him what the plan is. But they sort of pass themselves on the way because the message gets delayed, and instead he gets there and believes that it's true. That misconception, misperception of fact of something that is more innocuous than it actually is leads to – or more innocuous than it seems – Uh, leads to tragedy. I thought that was fairly well handled there, but I could see why others are like, Luke would never do such a thing! You know, this is not the Luke Skywalker I know! He's very human, and no, this isn't the Luke that we knew, because this is the Luke that is broken down, has lived with being a legend for so long, and, and has grown, and is just as flawed as anyone else. He's not the perfect hero anymore. So I liked it, but I know that a lot of people are griping about it. They don't dig the way it played out. I mean, did you find it tragic or was it something that was more like, like I always look at it in terms of, you know, the, the bigger themes. Cause I'm just a Shakespeare nerd, but how did you perceive that? Like, did it play out? Well, is that your Luke or did Luke break your expectations and screw up the character?
0: So for me, I I'm more in Mark Hamill's camp. Um, you know, I, I in fact, I, I had a, a video queued up with, with him talking about, you know, the fundamental differences in Luke, which made me think, you know, even Hamill is kind of down on Legends. Like, like you get the feeling his reaction to this Luke is kind of like my reaction to Luke. Like that's
1: not Luke's a superhero. Luke wouldn't do that. That's right. It wasn't his comment, something along the lines of like, uh, at first he really disagreed with the direction Luke was being taken in, but then once he saw it played out and once he had a chance to talk to the director and really get into it, he thought it was a bold and, positive move for the saga as a whole isn't that the gist of what he said because a lot of people are going back to the whole well i didn't like it at first and they're forgetting the other half of what he said about it
0: yeah yeah the other half isn't there i'm going to play the video real quick because i, I he, yeah he's in the same but you almost wonder like was he paid to say that other half i mean granted i don't i don't feel like he was but you almost question it because his initial reaction is pretty much the gut check legends luke fan reaction who is this guy how did the most optimistic hopeful character in the galaxy, turn into this hermit who says it's time for the Jedi to end. I've, I read that and I said, what? I mean, that's not what a Jedi does. I mean, a Jedi is optimistic. A Jedi is, has tenacity.
1: He never gives up. He doesn't secrete himself on an island. So that's the first half of what he said without the back half of what he said.
0: Yeah, he, yeah the back half's not in that. The video kind of puts, puts you in that position of this is a different Luke. And, you know, like he said, if if you're looking to capture something, be prepared to be a little disappointed. So I I don't know for me, like that was one of the things that really changed everything. Like I I think about Luke and I'm like, you had Ben Kenobi, you had Yoda examples of, you know, Kenobi, especially I trained Darth Vader. He fell to the dark side and I'm going to disappear and hermit myself off. Like, you know that that didn't work. Uh, or, or are you going to say, oh, well, well, it all did work out in the end. So therefore that must've been the will of the force. So I should probably do the same. Like that, I think for me was, it was a hard swallow that that's where Luke, you know, went from after that. I could get the aspect of feeling the embarrassment, the, the, uh, the shame of almost killing your nephew, uh, running and not wanting to confront your sister about that. But I so there's more in that scene that I'd like to know. Like, okay, so, so, Kylo, you know, Ben Solo at this moment, he brings the roof of the shed down on Luke. And then what? He goes off to kill everyone else and takes half of them with him. Like, Masters Luke, he's trying to kill me. You guys team up with me. We got to take him down. Like, like, how did that conversation go down? That's that's something I'm definitely looking forward to knowing more of. I wish that the the flashback would have gave us more. But I I guess I had an issue when it came to that Luke in that moment The way he looked, uh, everything about the look of the character, like he looked a little odd at times. Like, I don't know. Like it was just, it was almost like they took the legends or the legacy from legends, Luke Skywalker Force Ghost and made that the model that they were using though for the, the betrayal Luke when Luke betrayed Ben. Uh, cause he definitely had that same kind of look and it just, I don't know, something about it kind of looked off and we saw that again at the end when he was doing the force illusion. So you kind of have a feeling like, okay, clearly that's going to be what his force ghost looks like if he comes back as a force ghost. Uh, but yeah, it's for me, that is probably one of the biggest new pills for me to swallow. Uh, The big three. I am not really enjoying this direction for those three characters. Um, you know, I wasn't a fan of what they did with Han. And the more they gave us on his backstory, the more I hated what they've done with Han. I really feel like they've shafted him and Leia and their relationship all the way around. And now they've shafted Luke with the same thing. He's, you know, as soon as whatever happened with Ben happened, he basically had no family. Uh, you know, and he died on the rock he disappeared to. I mean, I did like the fact that we had some of those touches to Legends, like when his Force Illusion showed up, that reminded me of Legends, uh, Aftermath, or, or, uh, not Aftermath, Dark Empire, the way that they played that out in that where he did that with Leia, where he was like, I'm actually not with you on the Falcon. I'm still on Coruscant. You're like, oh my God. Like, that was a cool moment. People that hated the Leia scene where she was floating in space, that was classic heir to the Empire right there. When Luke first met Mara, I mean, he was basically floating out in space. His X-Wing was shut down. He'd gone rogue, basically was floating out there. And Mara just happened to just sense him and pick him up. Uh, so I like those little touches and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's definitely... If you want Luke the superhero, you're going to have to go with Legends. I mean, you, there's... Luke in canon is, is a flawed character and it's surprisingly, once again, this all revolves around hope. You know, they, they've managed to make that the focus for Rogue One and they've come back again with this. I mean, hope is going to continually be a theme of Star Wars and they played with it in the right way. I definitely enjoyed
1: how that worked out. I think that, I mean, you said kind of a bit there. So the raised parents thing, um, I think that that is, You know, I kind of like the way that it played out, the fact that it turns out that it's sort of back to the idea that anybody could be a Jedi, as opposed to it being, well, it's all about your family and the midichlorians passed to you kind of stuff. The fact that she could be someone coming from completely humble beginnings and rise makes a nice counterpoint to Kylo, because even as he's mocking her for it, essentially, uh, or pointing it out so that she could join him and be someone, um, it's easy to remember that, you know, he's basically nobility, Right? I mean, he's the child of Leia. So even if it was completely devoid of the connection to Alderaan, given her political stature, it basically sort of makes him nobility, whereas she is a nobody. That I kind of liked. I do think that there is an answer to Luke's actions, although I'm looking for the confirmation. I've heard that this is actually confirmed in the visual dictionary. I didn't see it in there, so I'm wondering if it actually is in there. But they may have set up Luke's decision in the new Darth Vader comic series. Because the new Darth Vader comic series uh, gives us the character of Kirak Infila, who has taken the so-called Barash Vow, which basically is a form of of penitence where you separate yourself out from uh, the Jedi or the Jedi Order and any activities relating to it because of whatever it is that has caused you to think that you need to do penitence in the first place. So if he's feeling guilty, it's not even so much just you know separating himself out so it can't happen again. It's sort of a, a self-punishment, a, a purgatory, so to speak, where he's sort of playing out his sentence before he can move on to anything else. And in that sense, I think it kind of works. I think it works better with that happening and going than uh, the way that it worked for Yoda, which was basically the, – uh, the galaxy just got into the hands of the Sith and – the Jedi Order has pretty much been wiped out. Uh, I'm going to go try to kill Sidious. Oh, I screwed up. I didn't manage to kill him. I guess I need to go into hiding for decades. You know, uh, failed I have. Go into exile, I will. And you're like, man, he took that hard. <laughs> <You> know, like <laughs> he, he's, just, he's, he's just leaving. She said no. Off the bridge. I must jump. The Leia thing, I think, worked fairly well. Um, They have set up previously within canon now. That she was basically the first student of Luke, though she only got trained a little bit before she was like, no, this isn't where my future lies. My future lies in continuing in the world of politics. It's mentioned in Bloodline, it's in the Visual Dictionary, it's mentioned elsewhere. So the fact that she has at least some ability, that made perfect sense. And it is in keeping with what we saw back in Return of the Jedi and what we got with her being able to sense the death of Han back in The Force Awakens. But I think a lot of people are misunderstanding that scene there. I've seen people out there who are like, oh, my God, it's like she's Mary Poppins or something. That's so stupid. And they're not. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Because so Leia's going to be out there going like, I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Right.
0: (laughs) But I I only can understand that reference in the aspect of the way her body was positioned.
1: (laughs) They're kind of right. (laughs) I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. But, I mean, you look at um, what she actually does, and it's one of the instances where they're actually using, you know—I know, it's crazy—physics in relation to the Force. Because what is she doing, right? They're like, well, she just puts out her hand and she flies like Superman. Well, she's not flying. She's not giving herself momentum from behind or something. She is reaching out. She is is trying to pull—essentially, she's using a Force pull on the ship, but with inertia— mass, zero gravity, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole equal and opposite reaction when it comes to forces. If you are a teeny tiny person trying to pull a big ass ship towards you in zero G, what's going to happen? The ship's not going to move. You are going to be pulled towards it. Um, which made sense. They're like, oh, well, then when she got inside and she knocked on the door, they shouldn't have opened the door because it was open to space and everybody inside would have been uh, killed by the decompression. They should have been screaming and freaking out when she came to the door saying, don't open it, don't open it, we're all going to die. <laughs> well, presumably, there is a a shield. We've seen energy shields in Star Wars uh, used to hold back vacuum All the time, particularly really ever since the prequels because we saw it for hangar decks over and over and over and over again. So the idea you'd have an emergency force field kind of thing that would activate, that is by no means anything that is a shock. And we've seen throughout these films, uh, there are instances where we see physical things pass through energy fields that are meant to deflect energy, not physical items. Um, We just haven't seen the distinction quite as much with like a slug thrower versus a blaster that they drew when they drew that distinction anytime they were trying to show that in Legends. So I think, again, I think those elements are working well, a lot of the things that are being complained about. The other thing that's being complained about, uh, which is hilarious because it's a thing that everybody – not everybody. There were predictions that people would complain before the movie even came out based on the international trailer, which is the oh my god, Ray can swim. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god, I never thought of that one. <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, I don't. she doesn't really swim much. I mean, she falls into the water and then manages to get herself to the edge. And we don't entirely know how deep it was. We just know she manages to make it to the edge. We don't necessarily see her doing some heavy swimming. For all we know, most of her way of getting to the edge was dog paddling and freaking out. It, you know, it, that in and of itself could explain it away. But we also have the, the more obvious explanation, which is... You realize we, we've we never seen anything of, you know, even if we assume that she never could have learned how to swim on Jakku, which kind of makes sense. You realize that there was a part of her life before she got dumped on Jakku or sold by her parents on Jakku, which makes them douchebags, by the way. Uh, and makes Unkar Plutt exactly who I would expect to be the one taking custody of her like we saw in the flashback vision in Force Awakens. We don't know anything from before she went to Jakku. Maybe she lived on a freaking water planet, for all we know. Maybe she just learned to swim on whatever planet she lived on. That's a muscle memory thing. Even if you haven't swam in years, your muscle memory is going to be able to kick in, and maybe you won't swim as well as you did before, but you're going to be able to swim. It's like riding a bike years later. So those who are like, oh my god, there's no way she could have learned how to swim, I'm wondering where they get this insightful knowledge that they have of her life before Jakku that has never shown up in canon anywhere. Please do explain why that doesn't make sense. Although, at least that discussion is a little bit better than the... uh Uh, Because it's not really based on an error so much as, I think, a... uh, Just, we don't know where she learned to swim in the first place, but it's not that she couldn't. It does remind me of the thing back in, like, the 70s, early 80s. I think it was just still in the 70s, where you had the Marvel series and Splinter of the Mind's Eye, where one of them said that Luke could swim and Leia couldn't, which didn't make a lot of sense, uh, because he really was on Tatooine all his life. And it was the flip side where the other source said that it was the other way around, and they had to eventually say, yeah, it really was the other way around, we just... Yeah, we screwed up, right? But that was back before there was supposed to be consistency between the sources because there wasn't a unified continuity yet. It was just Del Rey doing its own thing, Marvel doing its own. But here, I don't see why that's that big of a deal. And if that's that's the movie-breaking thing for you, maybe you're not paying attention to the right parts of the movie that you're meant to pay attention to. Um, It'd be kind of like if I'm trying to watch and understand Fight Club At one point, there's a cup of coffee on the counter in one shot that's full, and the next shot it's empty because they forgot to refill it for the next take. And I said, you know what? This movie is crap. No, no. Get a freaking grip. Well, you know, one other thing I
0: really enjoyed about the Leia scene was, did you notice the legacy angle there? Her, like Cade
1: Skywalker, they were walking in the sky. Ooh, (laughs) ooh. She should have come back in and said, you know, we take what is given, but... No. Or maybe Luke should have said, No one dies for me, never again. Uh, Or maybe we should have had, when Rose is like, I love you to Finn, well, not I love you, but the whole, you know, the things that we love, et cetera. Uh, Maybe she should have called him something cutesy and huttease.
0: Oh, man. Rose reminded me of Patrice from How I Met Your Mother when she was going after Barney. I just kept waiting for Robin. Damn it, Patrice!
1: What? (laughs) Now, I will say, I actually think, and that's another big complaint about the film. It seems like what we're doing is we're we're answering the complaints a lot. Um, but one of the others is, oh, really? So within like, what, 12 hours, a day, whatever, all of a sudden, Rose is in love with Finn. Well, remember, she had the hero worship thing to begin with. Plus, think of what all they've been through and the fact that this is Disney. And she lost
0: her sister. I mean, you've got that emotional hole
1: as well. I mean, how many times have we seen in a movie where someone who's going through emotional turmoil and loss and who's just gone through this wild and crazy adventure, the adrenaline is up, and when they get back, the first thing they do is jump the bones of whoever it is that's nearest, right? Or whoever it was that was with them on that journey. But this is Disney, so they're not going to jump each other's bones. Instead, she'll profess love. Um, uh, thankfully, the only time—well, not really thankfully, because it was horrible. Um, the only time we've actually had to deal with a caressing of boobs, I guess you could call it in a uh, Star Wars films have been a uh, Hans little out uh, should have been an outtake thing of accidentally grabbing Leia's whenever she gets shot on a uh, indoor, uh, kind of a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. And this movie's re uh, just fascination with needing to show us where Luke's getting his milk from, or at least God, I hope it was milk. But given the looks that they give each other. Yeah, it's it, it, I don't know. I got a I got a very Luke's like, look, Here's the milk, and he looks at Ray like, like, eh, eh. I think it's supposed to be, see, I can handle myself. See, you should be disgusted, and you should leave now. But instead, when he's like, eh? eh, and the fact that she's a female makes me immediately think, man, Lauer,
0: just give it a rest. Oh, see, I was thinking like he's pulling the Yoda gave me bad stew. I'm offering you this teat.
1: <laughs> oh God, I'm not sure which is worse. Uh,
0: Really? Exactly. Now, I I, one thing that I wanted to ask you is, I was originally, when I went into this, the only perception that I really kind of had was, I thought, you know, we were going to go into Episode 7, and when Han died, I was like, okay, next one's going to be Leia, and we're going to end with Luke. Now, we had to flip the script, and it's Luke that goes out, not Leia, which, Carrie Fisher passing away,
1: did Disney make the wrong call killing Luke and not Leia in this film? So, I think it's sort of a yes and no kind of question. Yes, they made the wrong call in the sense that had they known it ahead of time, then yeah, they absolutely should have made it her going now and Luke going later. Uh, But I think at the same time, it serves the story for her to still be around and him not to be. She can sort of go into retirement or whatever. She could theoretically die off screen, although that would kind of suck. Yeah, but she's the only resistance leader at this point. I mean, we saw Akbar die. But she's not the only resistance leader. I think that's part of the point of one of the arcs in the film. So we've got uh, – in a couple ways. So let me, I'll, I'll come back to that. So just on the Luke question, I think the way they handled it was w- very well done – and it sort of made sense for that to be the handing off. So it's like the the first movie was introducing the new generation. This one is sort of giving the new generation a chance to sort of take precedence and sort of clear the decks to some degree and become the leaders of their particular factions or are uh, close to it. The next film can actually then put that generation against the others of that generation without being as reliant on the previous generation. Um, the fact that Luke goes out in something that is basically a life-saving delaying tactic and something that was uh, more spiritual and something that was more about peace and saving life than it was just kicking ass in a blaze of glory. I actually think that worked really, really well, though I know a lot of people who are like, oh, great, so what, he lost the will to live now? No, he he drained himself. It took a lot of effort, and (laughs) he fades into the force. But as it pertains to um, the whole Leia thing, I think the whole point of the arc with Poe, and this is something they've been sort of leading up to also with similar conversations in the Poe Dameron comic, is this idea that Poe needs to be the next leader. She's sort of grooming him to be the next leader. You see her reaction when he finally starts acting more like a leader and less otherwise. It reminds me of, um, I want to say, I forget what the line was, but there's a line in there somewhere where it's about how a situation that he was involved with had like a captain or something, but not a leader. Right, And it, by the end of it, he's starting to think of the big picture and the good of the entire resistance rather than otherwise. He's not trying to go out in a blaze of glory. He's not trying to find a way to go out and attack the First Order. He's trying to find a way to just use the fact that uh, the First Order is distracted to get everybody the heck out of there, to save their lives and sort of keep the resistance going. And if you've got that going on, of him being sort of a leader in that sense and people actually following him, you know, why are you know, while you're looking at me? Follow him. And then we got these other groups out there that we know exist that didn't come to help. Then maybe that's what's going to allow him to sort of supplant uh, Leia's place there. Uh, the other thing I would point out about that delaying tactic, since it kind of ties into both, is that as cool as the delaying tactic was, there was one thing about it that irked me. And at first I was like, oh, wait, is that a continuity issue? And then I was like, no, 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 it's cool, it's cool, it was a giveaway. And then now I'm like, nope, it was another freaking continuity issue again. Which is that when Luke does the, the whole projection thing to so to quote-unquote fight Kylo, we're able to sort of realize after the fact about how, well, wait a second, we must have been a vision because you actually never see them interact. The blade, you know, that when he ducks backward, it does the Matrix-type thing um, never touches him. So, yeah, he doesn't touch, and you look at the ground, and uh, Kylo's feet leave marks and his don't, though I was thinking that was just a matter of just how awesome Luke was and how balanced he was, but it turns out it's because he wasn't actually physically there. But the fact that Luke fights with the blue lightsaber, I initially was like, when I didn't realize it was a vision, I was like, well, where the fuck did that fucking lightsaber come from? Did he build another one that was identical to Anakin's or something? Um, did he have it from a student? Like, maybe was that Ben's originally? Though, why didn't Ben take his with him? Because we see Ben with a blue one in the flashbacks. Where the heck did this lightsaber come from? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's actually meant to be a giveaway for us as the audience, that it's a vision. So kind of a nice little, hey, if you're paying attention, you kind of know what's going on kind of moment. That's cool because that lightsaber just got destroyed. And, you know, Ray was trying to take it to Luke. So it would kind of make sense. And then you keep thinking it through and go, and wait, no, because Kylo was actually in the room when it was destroyed. And Kylo should expect him to have his green saber, not the blue one. So why in the hell is he using the blue one? I see no reason why Luke shouldn't have been using his green lightsaber instead of the blue one in that scene for the projection. Because the blue one, even if he didn't know what happened to the blue lightsaber, it winds up at, for the audience, that means that Kylo just was not observant or I guess so blinded by his rage or whatever that, what, Kylo didn't notice the fact that he's being fought Quote unquote, with the lightsaber he just saw destroyed moments ago, and that shouldn't have given him a clue. I think they made the wrong call by making it the blue saber instead of the green one. That's one of my handful of, of small plot things that it didn't break the film, but it kind of irked me because it didn't seem logical. No,
0: that, that is exactly, that is a on the nose observation right there. Um, one of the things I was thinking about out of that was, you know, where was the green blade? You know, clearly it's still on Atchito
1: or whatever you could say it. Well, hell, is it, given what he did with Anakin's saber as soon as he got it, flipping it over his shoulder, which was hilarious and set the tone for the rest of the film, by the way, I mean, I would imagine the green one may even have been destroyed at some point. I don't remember us seeing it during the film. We might have, but, I mean, I mean, even the X-Wing, you know, there's all, oh, oh, he's going to use that X-Wing and it's going to come out of the water and he's going to go out there and join the fight. It's hard to notice it while it's underwater, but... Um, one of the S-foils is gone from the X-Wing because it's the door to his room. <laughs> so, I mean, see, I mean, I would assume that that green lightsaber may just be gone, but how would Ben have known that? How would Kylo have known that? He should have expected green.
0: Yeah, see, and I, I don't think it's gone because Rey has no lightsaber now. She has no
1: real reason to think Luke's dead. She's got to go back, right? She's got to go back to Luke? Well, shouldn't she have sensed him fading into the Force, though? Because the only reason Luke didn't sense the death of Han... Or the death of all of those on Hosnian Prime was that he had cut himself off from the force. That's why he had to know he had to be told by Ray how bad the situation has gotten. Ray hasn't cut herself off, so and she has a close connection to Luke now. Shouldn't she have felt Luke's death and sort of known that, you know, that the baton is or the lightsaber in this case is passing to me? I, I don't know that we saw her have that kind of reaction, but surely she would have sensed it, so now she knows that he's gone, doesn't mean she can't go back to the planet um, to look for artifacts or something, but I would assume she knows, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah, actually, now that you point it like that, yeah, that does make sense. Uh, So I could see Rey going back for that lightsaber to come out with Luke's green one because I don't, I don't know, I, I don't see her building one. That's that's the problem here, whereas Ben Kenobi left diagrams for Luke. I just, I don't see where she's going to be able to build one on her own. You know, we we saw that scene where we go inside the tree and we see the old Jedi books and stuff. And there was a moment at the end when she's in the Falcon and there's some loading up some gear and stuff. And I could have swore that those books were in the Falcon. And I was like, wait, how in the, so I'm like, I want to did like, Chewie go grab those? Did Luke send those off to her? Did she go and steal them? Or am I just like, Seeing things that never happened like that really threw me off when I saw those and I was thinking about, you know, like, okay, well, if she did have them then then that puts her in the position to basically become the new Luke, you know, like where Luke went with Legends and created a new Jedi order and all this stuff like now she's in that same position. She has less information than Luke had in canon, Uh, you know, which was how Legends originally started out. We didn't have a prequel trilogy. We didn't have all that backstory. It was just Luke. All the Jedi are dead, and he has to rebuild the Order. In a sense, that's where you have Ray right now. So that's that's definitely an interesting thing. Did you catch the book thing in the Falcon there at the end? Or is that just something I may have missed? I mean, you've seen it twice, so you may have caught it on the second time. I'm definitely going to be paying more attention when I'm watching it on my second and third viewing. Because I could have swore that those bindings on those books in the Arabesh was the same as
1: the ones that we saw inside that dead tree. So I've only seen it the one time but i was informed by the people in the uh, chat during one of the live streams and by jim perry who was with me on it that uh, yeah those are the actual books from uh from the collection that luke gathered over the years so apparently uh either she took it or like you said you know maybe luke put them on the falcon or whatever uh maybe yoda was covering for her because she stole them and he and wasn't going to let luke inside to see them or something um, but yeah, they were actually on the Falcon. Uh, that was while I was taking a leak the one time during the film. But yeah, I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing that, that she would have access to those now. But does that mean she's going to be able to make a lightsaber? Eh? Well, will just have to see. Maybe she'll make like a saber staff because she was so good with the staff that she had before. What I found uh, of all the like the Jedi relics and stuff there, a few things stood out to me more in relation to the Visual Dictionary and other stuff that we learn and other connections. One was that we see the compass. So for those who played Battlefront Two, uh, there is a mission on which Luke winds up on the planet Pilio, runs into uh, Dell, who's a member of Inferno Squad for the Empire at that point, and uh, they're going to an observatory similar to the one that was on Jakku, one of these like little storehouses for the Emperor that has all kinds of artifacts in it, and Luke recovers a compass from it. And the compass is shown here. And the assumption was that that compass must have been what he used to find the first Jedi Temple in the first place. That must have been how he did it. Only, I'm wondering if it's that the constellations have changed over time, or like the you know stellar drift and stuff has happened or whatever. So he, that was just a reference point that was part of the process, because the Visual Dictionary instead describes it as basically, if I'm understanding right, the trees on that, that planet, particularly like the big tree, are the same type of tree that he saved in Shattered Empire. And he followed the path of how the seeds and seedlings and whatnot from that tree would have gone from planet to planet to planet to planet to, planet to eventually wind up where they wound up and follow that backwards to seek out their source, which is what eventually led him to the island on the, the, the first Jedi Order planet and such, which was not something I expected. Uh, I expected that to be revealed in a movie, but that is basically laid out in the visual dictionary. So it was cool to see that among the artifacts was the compass, but it didn't seem like the compass had nearly the impact and import that we thought it did. I'm wondering if we could get some of that maybe in um, the last of the Poe Dameron comics and such, perhaps. Or, or maybe the book. I mean, we've got four months. Maybe this is why they put it out. Maybe they're going to flesh that type of stuff out. They could. They certainly could. And we've got the uh, – uh, I'm, I'm – Kind of curious also about how that comic series is going to end up because now we have another way – we now have two explanations, kind of if you count the Lego one, of exactly how it is that uh, Laura Santeca gets found by the First Order. So they got to make sure that is still consistent with what they're doing in Battlefront 2 and presumably what's going on in – uh, maybe Lego Star Wars, if they, if they keep the background of the whole idea, well, there's sort of canonical elements in it, but it's it's all cutesy stuff, so it's not exactly how it happened kind of stuff. Um, though I do like the fact that the new DLC for the game, I think, is what explains how they knew how to take down the, uh, the dreadnought at the beginning of the movie. But the other thing, though, was that if you look at the symbol that's inside the building, which they recreate in the Visual Dictionary, You look at that symbol, and it really, really looks like Snoke's species on that symbol, his humanoid species. And that symbol is described in the book as being the symbol of the Prime Jedi, capital P, capital J, essentially the original Jedi, which certainly sounds like maybe maybe that explains the whole focus on light and dark both, that this is before there was a Jedi Order or a Sith Order. This was something different. And that was where people were freaking out, including me, before the film because of the spoilers that came out from the Visual Dictionary. And then no mention of it whatsoever, the concept of Prime Jedi not being mentioned at all, unless that's just referring to the idea that, well, it's where the Jedi Order was founded, the end. So one of my bigger disappointments tied into the Visual Dictionary in that we still don't know who the hell Snoke was. We know nothing about Snoke, really. All of a sudden, he's super powerful and able to use his powers even when just communicating through hologram. Yeah, but Vader was able to do that, though. True, that's true, that's true. Though from a, this seems like it's from a largerness, but that that is true. But he's crazy powerful and, a, and able to sort of you know whip Ray around like a freaking rag doll and such. And yet we know nothing about him. And one of the biggest shocks, the big shock to me, wasn't oh Luke's dying. It's that Snoke died. I expected Snoke to still be there, and it turns out he's not the big bad of the series. He's a stepping stone in making Kylo the true big bad of the series and being part of his arc. But it makes me fearful that we may not get enough background to really know who Snoke was in the big picture and how maybe he ties into the things mentioned in Aftermath about, you know, the darkness and the unknown regions. I want to know who Snoke was. And I don't mean in the, you know, which character that we knew before must be Snoke. Is he Plagueis? Or like with like my wife pesters me with all the time, um, is he Ezra? No, honey. No. Um... <laughs> But he's just a moisture farmer from Dantooine. We need to know something about him because now we never—I mean—they set him up as if this is this big mystery to get answers, and it's like Ryan Johnson basically said, "Yeah, I don't care about those answers. I'm gonna shuffle that off and let somebody else deal with them." So hopefully, in episode nine or in some of the material between now and then, we'll get some kind of explanation. Unless that's Ryan Johnson's new trilogy. Ooh! Ooh! Oh! Damn, son! I didn't even think of that.
0: Because, see, I- I'm in the same boat with the Force Order. I'm like, what Force Order? You know, what is he training Kylo as? Like, what? So m- I come around, if Snoke is dead, is Ray and Ben's bond broken? Because could Snoke have been using a Force illusion during that throne room scene? I mean, Snoke's, like you said, he's utilizing powers we've never seen before. Uh In the episode before this, we watched Kylo stop a bolt in midair and just hold it there for a second then let it go. So we're seeing Force techniques that we've never seen before. What
1: if this is just an illusion? What if this was all something Snoke did on purpose? I would suggest that, although I don't think that that's the case, I think Snoke is actually dead, you do have the aspect of that their bond was still in existence even after, Sno- after Snoke was gone, because we see their bond later in the film, uh, near the end, at least it seems like we're seeing that near the end, um, and he was already gone, and Luke was gone by that point, I believe, so but but i wonder if what was if the idea was that he forged a bond but the bond once forged just doesn't go away especially given the power that she was around on uh on the island that it was less that he was having to maintain that bond and that he created it because i think what he says is he was the one who connected them but that can be taken either way as i'm the one connecting you or i'm the one who connected you, and now I have nothing to do with the actual connection. He said it in past tense, but depending on the way you interpret his phrasing, that could be seen as an ongoing thing still based on that thing that started back then, or, yeah, I connected you now, I'm out, have fun with that connection, um, I'm Um trying not to think about each other when you're in the shower, kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, which, which, you know, it, it gets to that who runs the First Order now. If it is clearly Ben from this point forward, it gets me to my next question. Can Ben be redeemed? I mean... I didn't think he could be redeemed going into this movie. I was like, okay, this movie is going to make or break his redemption. And at one point, I thought we were there. I mean, we had that killer throne room scene, you know, after he kills Snoke, and they go up against those prairie guards, or whatever they're called. That was so awesome. But then he decides that he's going to basically take over. And now, I I am having a harder time. Like, I'm loving Ben's character more and more, but I'm I'm questioning. I don't I don't know if he's gonna be able to be redeemed. I mean, you and I have known Lucas's original treatment or talks about, you know, this trilogy was, you know, it was going to be about the father redeeming the son. So I was kind of assuming maybe it would be like the uncle redeeming the son. Nope, that's gone. Father's gone. Okay, maybe it's Ray redeeming the son. But where we're at? I don't know, man. Can Ben be redeemed?
1: See, I don't know, and I think I was like you, that was one of the big surprises of this film, which was how close he came to it. Like, I was believing that he could actually turn by the time we got to the point at which it turns out that, no, it was more that he was taking control of his own destiny and thought that he could do what was best, and then he was going to try to bring Rey along with him. In a lot of ways, it reminded me of the end of Revenge of the Sith, you you know, I can destroy the Emperor, then we can make the galaxy like we want it to be, and all that that in essence he's still sort of set on his path of what he thinks is right, it's just that now he's got rid of an impediment in his way. He's taken out someone he sees as evil, even though he, now he does at least, even though now he doesn't. It's almost like taking out an abusive parent and then still being an abuser yourself because you're not taking that out of your makeup. I do think it's pretty clear that he is the one that's in charge now. I mean, granted, uh, Hux for a second is like, who do you think you are, or whatever. But we got that great moment where we had basically a Star Wars twist on a real world saying, which I think, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce it right, so French speakers, pre- please forgive me. The Le roi est mort, viva Le roi. you know, the king is dead, long live the king, which is sort of this traditional thing that you hear where it's, you know, it sounds contradictory, but it's, you know, the king is dead, the old king is dead, long live the king, the new king. And, and we have them together saying, you know, the supreme leader is dead. Long live the supreme leader, which is basically Hux's acknowledgement uh, or hugs, as Poe says at the beginning, you know, general hugs, that his acknowledgement that now Kylo is in charge. And I think that's one of the things that that made me feel like this was a movie that's really sort of setting up things so the next film can really be this next generation not coming into their own, but already having come into their own and now Clashing and ending this part of the story because it does put him in that position. And it was an interesting character arc because you could believe at one point that yes, he actually may have turned. There may still be good in him, but it's one of those where, you know, whatever is good in him, maybe now it's gone. But either way, he's made his choice. You know, like Snoke could be seen as manipulating him before, and okay, well, oh, he's under Snoke's influence. If only we could get him away from Snoke's influence, he'd be so much better. Now Snoke is gone, and he is still making the choice to do what he's doing. Now it's definitely on him, not some misguided way of us saying, oh, well, he's not in control of his actions anymore. That, I thought, worked well. I think his whole arc in this film worked really well. Uh, The rivalry with Hux, uh, the fact that he was... I mean, you think about, again, going back to the abuser thing, we finally get to really see here that with... Snoke, it wasn't just that Snoke was berating him, you know, in the first one every once in a while. He berates the hell out of him in this film. Snoke comes off as this abusive parental figure, essentially. This abusive figure of authority. And sure enough, that includes physical abuse like what he inflicts upon Rey and such. And then what is Kylo doing when Hux questions him? He tries to choke him at one point and he slaps him out of the way with the Force in the next. So, the abused becomes the abuser. The legacy of abuse continues. Again, going into this complex psychology that's a lot deeper, I think, for Kylo Ren than a lot of people give him credit for. It really solidified his place, in my particular opinion, of Star Wars characters. And it's a great arc. And the fact that Rey is able to believe in him and gets that disappointment and that's what finally solidifies them as enemies... That I think was great. The fact that she still believed that there was good in him, um, that it really didn't turn out the way that she thought it was going to, that was great. And he had the ultimate thing to tempt her with, right, the identity of her parents from their connection. I thought that that all played out very well uh, and in a way that was unexpected but at the same time didn't feel – Forced. It didn't feel like someone was throwing us a curveball and we were expected to believe something that takes way too much suspension of disbelief to really feel like could happen with these characters. It all felt very natural and yet at the same time unpredictable, which is the hallmark, I think, of how well this film dealt with defying expectations.
0: And, and if Kylo is telling the truth and her parents were just nobodies but a couple drunk minors and stuff, that's kind of a, a, a ballsy claim. Like, I'm going to tell you who your parents are if you join me. Eh, they're nobodies. It almost seems like he was flat out lying. Like, you know, I've got some juicy information about your parents if you want to join me. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, they were nobody. Yeah, I'm not going to really tell you because, you know, they they may have been somebody important, but <laughs> they're nobody. Well, this would be a good time to uh, jump in with our sponsors. In fact, Stars beyond the films is brought to you by tops top Star Wars stellar signatures this limited collection features autographs from 40 of the most in-demand Star Wars actors on luxurious slabbed 48 point cards oh that just that just sounds impressive as heck only 100 collector boxes will be made <laughs> all cards are numbered 240 or less with one guaranteed one of one autographed in each box
1: oh I, I want, but at the same time, my wallet cries. But that's, that is such a cool-sounding set. I may right? have to try it anyway. Uh,
0: only 100 collector boxes will be made. That, to my fandom, screams must have if this is something that you collect. Uh, I did something like this similar when Dark Horse put out a hardcover... Uh, 30th anniversary edition. There were only the ones that were ordered made. I was like, I had to do it. So this this may be something I only have to jump on myself. The Star Wars saga continues also with top Star Wars The Last Jedi trading cards. Featuring characters and scenes from the upcoming film Star Wars The Last Jedi, plus exciting hits to chase. You got two hits per hobby box, sketch cards, medallion cards, autographed medallion cards, and more, as well as one autograph or sketch card per hobby box, guaranteed can't go wrong with a guarantee. And there is also the Star Wars Card Trader app. There's a limited crystal bundle sales that are live in the Star Wars Card Trader app right now. You can get up to 20% more crystals in participating bundles. Offers available through December 21st. Users can open free packs every day, get coins and rewards just for signing in and access daily card releases. This is the app every Star Wars collector should have. Start amassing your collection today. You can also trade with me on the Logical Rogue 2 over there. You can download the Star Wars Card Trader free now in the App Store or Google Play. All right. Now, getting back to the goods. I had to ask this. Now, I'm sure the answer is probably already laid out there, but why did Luke die? Now, Kylo had said something to Rey about that bond, about how it was too tough or something like that should kill her. Do you think that everything when Luke did the exertion of the force, that's what killed him? Or do you think the fact that he was there in the force and Kylo's lightsaber went through him, it delivered a killing blow? Or do you think that it's it's just simply it was the distance? And unlike Snoke, who may be a prime Jedi and has more
1: power, Luke just didn't have enough force muscle? to uh, stay living after that feat? I think it was just the exertion. I mean, I think he kind of knew that this was something that would tap him out. But he was also, I feel like Luke in a lot of ways was sort of almost like Yoda in the sense that it's almost like he was waiting for the time where he could die, where he could go in peace. But he had this unfinished business to deal with. And in the case of Yoda, it was he needs to be able to pass things on to Luke to make up for his prior failure of not taking down Sidious. Whereas in this case, it's kind of like Luke needed to be able to know that he could pass things on to Rey. Like, he was totally fine with being the last of the Jedi and ending everything. But maybe that there was some part of his destiny or some nagging doubt in his mind that he, once, at least once he met her, that he could actually allow it to continue with her as the new last Jedi and that that work... Once done, allowed him to sort of be at peace. But yeah, I think that was much more sort of the spiritual side and the exertion side than anything else. But again, we'll probably get more detail eventually in the novelization. Um, As long as it isn't that he just, you know, after dealing with Kylo, he just lost the will to live, then I'm good. And even then, he didn't leave behind a couple of kids.
0: Well, and, and he had to have felt Snoke die, right? I mean, like, you've hidden yourself off because Snoke, this, this bad A force user has taken your nephew as his apprentice and has corrupted him. And he's now the, the, the leader of the Knights of Ren, which clearly were your Knights at one point. Like, I, I don't know. Like, like Luke had to have felt Snoke die, right? Which, which proves that Snoke then probably didn't have a force grip on his troops like Palpatine did because they didn't get spun into a disarray and everybody just couldn't shoot everything and stuff. Like, I, I don't know. There's definitely got to be more there. Maybe the book, maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's why they pushed it out four months. So Snoke died really anticlimatically. What about Phasma? I mean, was there a character that they just tried so hard to make Boba Fett if ever there was?
1: Yeah, I mean, Phasma went out here fairly easily. I mean, yeah, she gets to have this final confrontation with Finn, but it's basically all she's there to do. And, again, they talked the character up so much previously and hyped the hell out of her back in Force Awakens, where she did very little. She did more here, but that's, again, the kind of the valedictorian of summer school kind of thing, right? Like, she was better than her last appearance in what she did, but she barely did anything in her last appearance. Uh, I was actually hoping that something, anything in this film, would tie into the Phasma novel and justify why we got that novel. Because, really, it's not a favorite at all. It's Mad Max meets Lord of the Rings, and it just did not do it for me. So I hoped that there was something that would justify that novel's existence with the character as we see her in this film. Not really. I did get a little bit more menace out of her knowing what kind of person she was, thanks to the novel. But otherwise... No. And I'm assuming she's dead. This movie and this, uh, sequel trilogy in general really tends to like to have people fall to their doom instead of actually seeing them dead. So for all we know, who knows? Maybe she found a way to survive, but I kind of hope not at this point. Um, but yeah, she was absolutely, she is this film's, uh, Boba Fett. She is this film's Darth Maul and that it's a character and probably closer to a Maul than a Fett. And then in this case, she got to be there, do very little except kick some butt and have a good fight sequence. And then, yeah, she shuffled off the board. I don't know. I feel like we got more out of Phasma in the Phasma comic than we got in any of her film appearances. And if this is the end of her story, congratulations. You guys just hyped the hell out of a character that didn't have the payoff that we expected. Uh and not even just the character was underutilized, the actress was underutilized. This is Brienne of Tarth. She rocks in her portrayal on Game of Thrones. She has range. Phasma doesn't have any range. No. And and, and then she brings in the
0: executioners. Like, girl, you should have you should have stabbed Rose. Let Finn know that this is business. No, we bring in the executioners, and what do they do? <laughs> Nothing. Unlike the the Praetorian Guard, like, oh my god, they were only in a few scenes, but damn, that was intense.
1: Yeah, the executioners looked kind of neat, but it's sort of one of those really, I mean, you've got a specialized unit for this. How often do you actually do executions in this form? Um, do you need a specialized kind of unit? Though I think that's addressed a little bit in the visual dictionary. I'd have to go back and look. The Praetorian Guards, uh, cool, good fighting. Interesting to see them fighting with these weapons that are meant to deal with lightsabers and such, so they're not just getting sliced in half, and a a well-done fight sequence. They're like amphistaffs, too. Yeah, but if you think about it, because of that, and because of it being sort of a force vision-y type thing, or a projection-type thing at the end, does that mean that this was a Star Wars film without any actual lightsaber duels in it?
0: Yeah, I mean, really, yeah, because, you know, Kylo and Luke never really touched lightsabers,
1: right? (laughs) Yeah, and then of course she you know, she and Kylo didn't because by the time they're together, they're they're sort of working together at that point. I mean, the fight sequence with the Praetorian Guards was a definitely a highlight of the film for me, though. It was cool to see them working together. Like, you wouldn't have expected that last time. And seeing them fighting back to back, even knowing that now they're kind of at least briefly sort of on the same side because of Snoke and the guards and everything, and that's who needs to be taken down. The fact that it reaches a point where she throws Anakin's-slash-Luke's-slash-her-lightsaber to Kylo so he can quickly activate it and slash through the head of the guy behind him. Yeah. That was kind of a big thing because, remember, in The Force Awakens, it was, you know, that lightsaber, it belongs to me, and then she takes it instead. And and the, the whole who gets to wield that lightsaber and its legacy was kind of a big deal in the last film. And in this film, it's going to be destroyed, that legacy kind of coming to an end. But there's a point at which she voluntarily tosses it to him, you know, and the fact that she is referring to him as Ben, not Kylo, even though when she, you know, when she's talking to him, she's acknowledging Ben. It's funny that because you put that in just a position when she's trying to convince Luke to train her. It was Kylo failed you. You didn't fail him. So it's her using the term Kylo when talking to Luke, but acknowledging him as the man that he was and hope and that she hopes he will become again. When talking to him, that was a fantastic sequence there. Um, and of course had a, you know, the moment where she's able to get his lightsaber and use it briefly, um, which is something we saw in the trailers. And a lot of folks thought would be spoiler that that means that she must be going to the dark side or something. So a nice red herring there for the advertisements.
0: Yeah. And Finn, you know, like we get that moment where he's blasting out on, on crate and I've heard other people mention it. And I, and I didn't think about it at the time, but if he would have died right then and there, like that was what I thought was going to happen, but they didn't go there. I mean, what if they would have though, that would have changed up so much for, you know, the the love angle. Cause like there was no love angle to this story, right? Like, like Finn is really the only shipping action. It's like, it's like, he was a stormtrooper for so long. He just wants to experience everything in life. So everybody's just like, let's let's put him with this person. Let's put him with that person. Like when he hugs Ray at the end, I'm like, like he definitely looks like he's longing for Ray. And yet now he's got this little groupie and Rose that's following him everywhere around. And he's realizing he's got options. Like you know, Finn's like a fish out of water here.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought Finn's characterization—they they didn't use him as much as I expected to. I expected them to, but you know, his immediate concern about Ray was, was, uh, something that sort of fit what we saw back in the previous film, that even though she can handle herself, he is drawn to looking out for her. I mean, you really know, in the first one, of course, uh, the first one of this trilogy, there's a, the blast and whatnot. And as soon as he comes to his first thing is, are you all right? And she's like, yeah, like, are you crazy? What about you? You know, it's kind of her attitude on it. And, uh, the fact that when he tries to leave this time, it's not trying to save himself, as was the case back in The Force Awakens. And instead, this was him having the little uh, tracker thing the s thread tracker thing and he wants to get the heck out of there so that ray isn't drawn back to her death um which was cool i think his adventure with rose was cool they they play well off of each other and he gets to see the darkness of some of the things that the first order did um rose gets to have the background that ties into so the downtrodden of the galaxy as opposed to the war profiteers at canto uh, canto bite which i was called bright for some reason and we get to see her sister die which gives her that immediate intense motivation but yeah, by the end, you're kind of like, wait, she said love? What? Again, I'm assuming it's sort of more of an adrenaline thing and a hero worship thing. I wonder how he's going to react to it because she immediately goes unconscious and we see her later unconscious. So is he going to be like, well, okay then and go along with it or is this something he's not welcoming? He does have those looks with Ray and Ray kind of looks at him when she's or when he is with Rose and you kind of wonder what's going through her mind at the time. Um, there seemed to be a little bit of a bond forming between them, perhaps more than just friends, a little bit in the previous one, but, you know, we didn't really see it play out or anything. Um, uh, what I think is the funniest about the whole Rose and, and Finn thing though, is all the people who are like, Oh my God, the relationship between Finn and Poe is dead. <laughs> like, well, you re- you realize that didn't actually exist before, right? That was fan speculation, fan theory, what some fans wanted to see happen. But it never actually existed within the continuity anywhere. It was all perception. It was all, oh, he bites his lip a little bit and says that the jacket looks good on That Finn. was it. That was it. That lip bite. And that was it. That was all that existed. <laughs> so to say that that relationship is dead is kind of an over-exaggeration because it didn't exist in the first place. To say the possibility of that relationship is dead, or at least closer to it, that may actually be a little bit more on point. Though I'm waiting for, you know, given uh The way that that Disney is approaching uh, the diversity and social justice side of things now and all that kind of stuff and the fact that we just haven't seen gay characters in Star Wars films generally. uh I wonder if what's going to wind up happening is we're going to have a singier moment, right, where Rose is talking to him and is expressing her affection. And finally, he's like, look, you're not my type. And by that, I mean you're female, right? Very similar to a singier, uh kind of moment back in Aftermath, which would work, you know, it would be fine. And it would fit within, you know, it, it has to fit within the context of the story. But for those who are like, you know, Finn and Poe were a couple and now this is blowing out of the water. No, you're taking the stuff that you have just latched onto in your mind and you are imposing it on a story where it doesn't exist or didn't exist yet. Um, you're going to have to just chill and see where it goes from here. But lamenting the loss of something that never existed is kind of I don't know, to me, that it reminds me, if I can make the political analogy, it reminds me of the whole argument over healthcare that's going on right now. And you got the idea of, well, if the individual mandate is gone, the thing that forces you to get health insurance or be penalized, um, X number of people would lose their health care. And when you actually look at it, what they're saying is that those people would just choose not to have health care because they're not being forced to buy it anymore. I would draw a distinction between choosing not to buy something and losing that something. Those aren't the same thing. Kind of the same thing here. You know, the fact that you saw something, you were putting a meaning on something that actually didn't fit reality, and now you're lamenting something that still doesn't quite fit with that reality. We need to take the, at least be intellectually honest enough to recognize that that, relationship was all about fan speculation it didn't actually exist and if it were to exist if it would have come into existence after the film and people said aha yes they are going to be a couple that would have probably been retroactively making them a couple or making them interested in each other rather than being what the film actually intended and that said don't freak out when something that didn't exist disappears because actually that's not any difference Right. Like if I don't have a sports car in my driveway and then somebody tells me I'm not to have a sports car in my driveway, I may be like, who are you to say that? Only I realize either way, there's not a freaking sports car in my driveway. It practically winds up being the same thing.
0: I may be being a little intellectually dishonest myself when it comes to one character in this film, a background character, but Elo Asti. Now there was a video out that says that this is a new character. It is no, not-
1: that's not Elasti. Yeah. It is a new character. But, it is a new character named after a different Beastie yes, Boys song, but.
0: I could swore I heard Poe talking under his breath to that alien and that he called him Asti or Elo at one moment. Like, Elo, this ain't gonna go well or Asti, this ain't gonna go well. And I was like, what? And then I saw that video after the fact, but I'm like, they put that video out because they screwed the pooch. They put Elo Asti back in there, forgot that he died. And then they just did a quick flub and changed the name because I could have sworn. That Ryan had that word in there and that he called him by that name. (laughs) I was like, I am definitely going to be paying attention when I listen to that again. Because when I first saw him, I'm like, but he died. Like, I love that character. Don't get me wrong. And on top of it, all my asty figure can work as this guy too. So I I could roll with that. But that was something where I, when that showed up, I was like, is that a continuity? And they just gave him another name because they were like, we screwed up.
1: (laughs) That is a Cy Um C apostrophe AI. Threnali, apparently, uh, that we got to see that looked so much like Eloasti and Odimova, by the way, from the, the comic series. They're the same species of Pyloser, and, and Abin- uh, Abinedo, I think is how it's pronounced, um, looking at the visual dictionary there. Um, I'll tell you a character, though, that uh, we met through the the books that was setting, of course, up the character to show up here. It wasn't like the character was created for the books that really disappointed me in this movie, and that was Laura Dern's Amalyn Holdo.
0: What? She disappointed you?
1: She disappointed the hell out of me. Oh, dude, I thought she was a total badass. Oh, She was dull in the movie. She was kind of... She was the, the reserved... A sort of noble acting character. She was basically like, what if Leia hadn't been in a coma and had been played by someone other than Carrie Fisher? You know, that she was, you know, she had her, what she was going to do. She was going to keep that from Poe because he hadn't earned access to that information. And now she's able to pull off getting them to crate, which is her plan with Leia, which makes sense because Leia learned about the crate rebel base back in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. The problem is Leia, Princess of Alderaan though. If you read Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which is the only place we've really gotten Amalyn Holdo's backstory at all, she was freaking nuts. She was like almost Afra level nuts. (laughs) And weird as hell. And it made her an interesting and amusing character because of how weird she was. Not a single bit of that comes across in the character in this film. They might as well be two completely different characters. So I'm expecting Amalyn Holdo to be this eccentric character in the film and show some interesting quirks. As she's a leader in this case, as she's sort of thrust in that leadership position. But aside from the way that apparently her costume is designed, based on, like, traditional looks of her homeworld or whatever, and the fact that her hair is dyed, which was something that, or, you know, we call it dyed, um, or something like that that was in the book, there is almost no connection between the Amelin we met in the lead-up to the film, supposedly in the Journey to the Last Jedi, and the Amilyn Holdo we get in the film. I would much prefer they had just introduced her in the film, and this is all we knew of her, than having her be this cool, weird, quirky character when we first met her, only now that she's in the film, she's boring as all hell. Um, she really, really disappointed me. But that you might call a negative Stover effect, right? In that it wasn't that the movie version of her disappointed me per se, she was just bland. It was the fact that I had read some other material and that colored my viewing But in this case, instead of giving me a more positive experience, it gave me a more negative experience because I wanted her to be a whack job. She is the Luna Lovegood (laughs) from Harry Potter of Star Wars in Leia, Princess of Alderaan. And here she just boring old wannabe Leia. Ironically, you know, what I have down here
0: on notes is, you know, Laura Dern's character was a total badass. Not at all what I expected. And it sounds like to a, a large
1: degree that not at all what I expected fell for you as well. Which is totally the theme of the film, right? Nothing will go as you expect. Every step of the way for the characters and for the audience, things are not going the way you expect. I just would not have expected that to turn out to be that we have a character whose characterization is not even remotely going to match how we set them up within the last few months to get you ready for this movie. Yeah,
0: See, and I I loved her being a foil for Poe. I mean, you know, we saw Poe at the beginning going single-handedly up against destroyers and stuff. You know, Poe's... And I didn't think about the fact that they were pushing him towards a leadership role until you had mentioned it. And now it's like, oh, that's brilliant. You know, I mean, because he's kind of bringing Finn with him. So Finn will be like a second in command kind of thing and raise their resident Jedi. I mean, think about that moment where she's lifting the rocks at the end and and helps everybody escape. I mean, she's going to be a hero for a long time. Wait, wait, wait. Does that make them Jedi rocks? (coughs) Uh, Well, we'll (laughs) play. But yeah, I mean, I I hadn't thought about that. This film really does, though. It shifts those three characters into the forefront of all the action that's going on. And, you know, it gets me back to that aspect of Leia of where we're going to go from here with Leia's character being removed. And, you know, you've got that her estate is willing to give the digital rights. They would be honored if they would use it. And then Disney going, no, we're not going to do it. And you almost wonder, you know, did Disney make a lot of these statements because they just didn't want to, you know, have immediate backlash and they were just saying that? I mean, because they basically got all the ducks in the row where they could go digital Leia. I mean, you know, we've that that CGI of her out in space like that was I mean, that's a that's a current model. You've got a young model, a current model like I mean, that to me, there's no reason why we couldn't work with that in the future. But with her now out of that, these three characters are going to have to pick up that role. I mean, like I said earlier, we we saw Akbar die in this film like it was so quick. And it was just an afterthought. Like, yeah, Akbar's gone. Now you're like, oh my God. Like,
1: didn't you think that that was actually kind of fitting though? I thought that was almost an homage to legends because he died off screen in legends also. And in this case he was on screen per se, but there was absolutely no focus on him or the fact that he died. He just kind of blink and you'll miss it. He's gone. So it was a, I guess, uh, Sertura, I guess it was, and we don't even know which pilots wound up dying in the hangar bay. We know, according to the Visual Dictionary, that most of the Black Squadron pilots had been scattered to other duties, so they probably weren't with Poe at the time. But we see Black One get destroyed, uh, we see, what's her name, um, Tally get killed, who is just introduced and just became part of the Battlefront 2 game, uh, so she's gone, but yeah, it seemed like that attack cleared the decks. So now they can basically say, you know, you know, we can have whoever we want as the new leadership. Though I'm assuming Snap Wexley probably didn't die, if only because JJ Abrams tries to put Greg Grunberg in everything. So surely he'll be back in episode nine and he just will have been on one of the other ships or something.
0: Well, I remember in the novelization for The Force Awakens that there was only about six fighters left of the entire resistance fleet. And we saw the Republic fleet get wiped out. So I'm like, where are all these ships coming from? I'm like,
1: <laughs> Ah, I have an answer for that too. According to the Visual Dictionary, the, the A-Wings and all that stuff and the bombers and everything are part of a res- resistance contingent that wasn't based out of Dakar, that are brought in because of a distress signal that is sent during or just prior to the Battle of Starkiller Base. So they're arriving, and there are people who said, well, wait a second, you know, why is it that the First Order is just now arriving to attack? Wasn't there already a battle? Well, remember, the battle was at Starkiller Base. It was not at Dakar. Um, so they do have to travel there in order to make that happen, which gives time for that to happen. I will say, though, that we have to kind of take with a grain of salt— um, what we got out of the first novelization because we didn't see a lot of play out of some of the little bits and pieces that Alan Dean Foster added for the novelization um, of the first film of this trilogy. But also he added a scene at the end in which Ray and Poe met. And we learned from the visual dictionary, they just really didn't have time for that to happen because of all the hubbub at the end of the, uh, uh, of the last film. And as such, there's a scene for them to meet here. So that is, is already gone. We're already going to be seeing the whole instance of, you know, a novelization is only uh, true insofar as it matches the film as opposed to the old Legends way of looking at it, which was that, you know, if it contradicts, the contradictory parts are gone, but all the extra added stuff is totally fine. So yeah, I'm I'm curious uh, how Jason Fry is going to be dealing with the novelization of this one. I kind of want to ask him because I've worked with them before. I kind of want to ask him like, dude, why is it taking months? Why are they making you wait months before the book actually comes out? But yeah, I thought that that whole... I mean, the, the whole shuffling thing like you're talking about to get ready for the next generation, I thought that worked very well. Um, But I am kind of surprised, even now, I mean, even... I was not as surprised at there, the fact that there were other Resistance groups out there who would join them, because I always thought it was a little silly, the idea that they would all be based out of the one planet, so if the one planet is attacked, they're all screwed. But I feel like the size of the Resistance... I mean, not granted, they, they said they contacted other groups that were out there that were with them, they just didn't send help. But... The Resistance seems incredibly small. It's like they've taken the whole David and Goliath type thing out of the original trilogy and increased it tenfold because the Resistance is so much smaller. But then again, the First Order isn't actually in charge of the entire galaxy. And if I may, let me pull up here uh, The Last Jedi... Wikipedia because I want to read the opening crawl because people are freaking out and people need to have their heads examined because, again, they're doing what they think is there, not what actually is. But you got people out there who are like, I don't get it, man. How did the First Order take over the galaxy so quickly, man? I don't get it. How are they in charge of the galaxy now? Because that's what the crawl says. No, that's actually not what the crawl actually says. We know that there are planets that are starting to capitulate after the Battle of Starkiller Base, and after, basically, uh, the attack on the Resistance and whatnot, and how many Resistance fighters were lost and stuff like that. We know there are some planets who are looking at the destruction of Hosni and Prime and saying, my give up, my give up, and turning. We get a mention of that, and that's covered in stuff like the Visual Dictionary too. But if you actually look at the crawl, the crawl says... The First Order reigns, and I guess reigns they're taking as rules the galaxy as opposed to they are the one in the top position. They are the most powerful now. They are calling the shots in terms of the events as they happen. They are the drivers of history, but then they, they're clear. The First Order reigns having decimated the peaceful Republic, which they did by taking out Hosnian Prime. Supreme Leader Snoke now deploys his merciless legions to seize military control of the galaxy. So he's either sending them out to take military control or. Or they're in control of everything. He wouldn't be sending them to take control if they were already in control. Those are two contradictory things. And then it goes on from there. But I felt like people were looking – it's like they were ignoring what the crawl actually set up and just doing whatever they felt like. But – You can't really do that. That would be like trying to go into Phantom Menace and make up your own explanation of of the taxation of trade routes and everything and how that dispute was all going and why the blockade was there in the first place. At some point, you delve into intellectual dishonesty to ignore what's in front of your face. Reigns doesn't have to actually mean rules the entire galaxy and the very next sentence undermines that interpretation of that word of that phrase.
0: I, I also love that Laura Dern had called them all rebels as they were heading off towards the thing. But one thing I, that I saw that I did have to stop and question. I didn't think about it at the time, but why again, couldn't the first order just jump some ships ahead of everyone else in the resistance fleet? I mean, you know, we watch them all get trickled down and stuff. It's like, man, if this is the core group of your resistance, lay a cell, right? And you've whittled them down to nothing. Like, Poe really has got to be, he, he's got to come out of this more triumphant than ever because otherwise Leia Cell is going to implode on itself. Take into consideration the fact that Carrie Fisher's passed away and we're probably not going to be seen in the next film. I mean, he is clearly our next leader. I mean, Dern's character's gone. So, you know, Akbar's gone. Like, we do not know of anyone else. I mean, granted, they can introduce anybody they want. That, that's, you know, that's neither here nor there, but, Of the people we do know about, he's about the only one to take that place. So I I thought it was kind of cool that she threw that out there because like you were mentioning, you know, now we're back to that ragtag group of rebels going up against something else. And I like the fact that they called it a resistance, but a resistance is just
1: but a bunch of rebels. (laughs) Though now that gets the song from South Park bigger, longer, uncut stuck in my head again. Um, I agree. That is one plot hole. And why didn't they just jump ahead? Or if they were going to call in reinforcements and other first order ships, why didn't they just appear in front of the path of travel of those ships? Uh, I would assume that it's something along the lines of either it was too short of a jump or, um, you know, they could have just turned and gone a different direction and we'd still be chasing them or something. But yeah, that was definitely sort of a hmm kind of moment. Uh, relative to that, that's one of those plot holes that has you co- sort of shaking your head. I'm, I'm sure that will show up on CinemaSins at some point.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs>
0: and there's just so much about this film. You know, we could sit here for another two hours easily. And, and this is just us watching it once.
1: <laughs> yeah. Imagine once we actually get the nuances and we get a chance to read the novelization and delve more detail in more detail into it. We may actually wind up, uh, needing to do like a follow up episode once the novelization is out months from now and the film is on home video. Uh, to be able to say, hey, you know, here's here's some other stuff we thought of. Which, by the way, I guess I should say, since I'm sort of a home video aficionado, I literally wrote the book on it, right? A Saga on Home Video. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, Plug, plug, plug. That Zavi in the UK, which is the place that you can usually get the exclusive steelbooks and such from, along with ordering just regular copies of the Star Wars films, already has pre-orders up for a steelbook version in 4K, which would be the first time we've seen a Star Wars film in 4K. And a 3D Blu-ray release, so whether it gets one here or not, it appears like it's going to get one there. And Best Buy in the U.S. already has a Steelbook pre-order up for a regular Blu-ray release. So it is possible that this will be the first time we'll see, and I think it's likely, this is the first time we're going to see a Star Wars film in 4K at home. Though I wonder how long the 3D thing will last. But that'll give us another thing to talk about eventually once it gets released on home video to sort of revisit the film. But also, how does it fare on home video in those different formats for those who are trying to choose between which one to get and whether to upgrade to a 4K TV and stuff like that? So see, it's not a bad thing that we aren't going to talk for like eight hours on it this time. It just means it'll come up again in our year in review. And then it'll come up again probably, uh, very likely once we get a chance to read all the supplemental stuff that goes with it and the, you know, the novelization comes out. That's good. The Last Jedi, the digested edition. exactly exactly so oh oh but then we need to be careful though because if it's going to be the digested or post digested edition we got to make sure that it's not too corny or crappy Ah! or crappy (laughs) there you go there you go which kind of goes together Uh, oh oh yes yes we definitely should be calling it quits now because that was just horrible that was terrible like our sophomore
0: humor that about wraps up this episode of star wars beyond the (laughs) film
1: Yeah. I'm a busy. Not too. Not too. Not too. Not too
0: that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films we'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on and sharing our fandom remember you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website 2nd Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com go over there and check out all the other podcasts not just our own Uh, episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it you can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in "Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWars.com now lastly before we go we wanted to mention to you our audible trial if you go to www.audibletrial.com slash star wars report you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about they have more than one hundred thousand titles you can explore the star wars expanded universe or any other genre without being stuck with a book you flat out hate because audible members they can exchange any book within 12 months that's one year with no questions asked so in this digital age if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook audible just might be right for you And we'd also like to once again thank our sponsors, T.O.P.S. You guys have been awesome. We've enjoyed being a a part of this adventure, this journey to The Last Jedi. So once again, four stars beyond the films. It's been Mark and Whistler.
1: And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That the poor soul at our movie theater who thought that Anakin and Luke were the same person that he's any less confused now. What are the odds that Chewie took a couple porgs as pets?
0: I figured he probably took a couple porgs as snacks. Now, up until they started giving him the guilt eyes. I mean, those porgs were porg Figured we had to at least make a porgable mention.
1: <laughs> I would have just looked at them with a smile on my face and started eating, but I'm a jerk that way.
0: You see, if I was Chewie, I'd have pulled out my bowcaster and had some target practice, see how many feathers I can make and make
1: a pillow. Oh, you're ready to be the next course, eh <laughs>
0: Yeah